Mud Stories, Episode 43. Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place again. So we thought, okay, we're going to do this again. We're going to try this again. Had our hopes up as high as they could be. And still God said no. And that no, I think, was the hardest part for me. It was less about the baby and it was more about the no. I just, I wanted the charmed life more than I wanted God to change my life. I wanted what I wanted and I wanted it now. And to see that none of those times, days, tears, minutes were wasted. To know that God was working out his perfect plan all along the way. So he knows and he sees and he works it all together for good. And that's so cliche, but it's so powerful. Hi, my name is Jackie Watkins, your host, and you're listening to Mud Stories, a podcast dedicated to bringing you inspiration in your muddiest moments, hope to make it through your mud, and encouragement for you to know that you are not alone. Hey, welcome to the Mud Stories podcast. If this is your first time joining us here, I want to extend a huge welcome to you. I'm so glad you're here. And if you've been with us before and heard Mud Stories with me, welcome back. I'm so glad you chose to spend part of your day here with me, listening to these amazing Mud Stories and being encouraged along the way. So I thought I'd share a little bit of a personal story before I introduce our guest today. You know, yesterday was a crazy day. Normally, I release podcasts on Tuesday, but yesterday was crazy. It was just a crazy busy day. We didn't do school. We had lots of appointments. And so this morning I woke up and I was bound and determined to get this podcast episode out to you. And uh, I will admit, I said some things to my children in some tones that are less than optimal. And also some of the ways I interacted with my husband will just say were less than stellar. (laughs) Suddenly leading to an apology and asking for forgiveness. Maybe you can relate to me. But anyway, I opened my computer um, and before I got too involved, I spent some time reading my Bible and today I was in Psalm 71, which is a very rich, beautiful psalm that was written by David. And I was just, you know, lamenting on my poor decisions this morning and just the hurriedness and rushedness that I had demonstrated to those I love the most, which is so easy to do, right? Those people who are closest to us tend to get the brunt of our crazy parts of our personality. And um, I was just really journaling and praying. You know, I like to write in my journal as I read the Bible, and I like to copy down verses that are speaking to me and ministering to me in that moment. And I was reflecting and asking God, you know, to be my rock and my fortress. Imagine those big fortresses on like a military compound. And that's where people go for protection and for cover and to be safe. And I really was just interacting with God and asking him and really, you know, sorry for the ways that I had acted this morning and just reflective. And then I got to verse 21 and it said, The psalmist was talking about, please increase the greatness of my character and comfort me. And so that became my prayer today, that that through making mistakes and through choosing wrong choices with my words and actions, that God would, as I surrender my sorrow to him in the way that I chose, that he would not only forgive me, but the people in my life would forgive me, and that I would be strengthened to become more like him in character, and that he would comfort me. And so, you know, as I opened my computer to start this podcast episode and finish editing and getting it all up for you all, I really was just kind of down and I was feeling like, wow, does anyone listen to this anyway? Does this even matter? And, um, my email, as I was working on the editing, I saw an email pop in and it was from a name I didn't know. And it said, hi, Jackie. And so, of course, my distracted self clicked on it to read it. And I am so very glad I did. It was like God 
answered me in that moment and sent me this email from this listener who found the Mud Stories podcast this last week, um, just randomly through YouTube. She found my video on tips for how to memorize scripture. So random, right? And she sent me an email thanking me for this podcast, how she's an American living in Shanghai, China. Uh, as her husband is working over there and just feeling disconnected and discouraged and facing her own mud. And she found these Mud Stories episodes and just in her email just said, thank you. Thank you for doing what you do and for keeping going with it. Now I have all these episodes to look forward to listening to. And so I wrote her right back and thanked her and let her know, you know, God really used her in my life this morning as a comfort, like I had prayed, you know, as a way to show me, see what you're doing is mattering. And, you know, podcasting is hard because you're just, I'm sitting here right now in this room talking to the wall, knowing that you all are out there listening, doing whatever you're doing, but it can be lonely because there's just not as much feedback and I don't hear as much from you all. And so, you know, God was so sweet to send me her email and her really to tell me that he sees me and he knows. And, you know, all the things we do as we aim to do what's right and to serve God and to, you know, walk according to the gifts that he's given us, whatever it is that you do, you know, you might be working at a desk or you might be, you know, serving at your child's school or you might be leading a family as a father, whatever it is that you're doing, God sees us in our offering to him with our heart wanting to serve him and please him and make his name known. He sees us. And there is hope for what it is that we're called to do. And so I just wanted to share that with you today. God will meet you in those small, everyday, mundane places. And as you seek him and ask himself to show himself to you, he is faithful to do that. He did that for me today through an email. And I know he can do that for you. So be encouraged. So I don't want to take too much more time because I know these episodes get long. So today we are talking with Kitty Hurdle, and I met Kitty through a fellow podcast interview that I had with Elizabeth Foss, and she told me all about Kitty and what's happening with with her life and how she serves, and I just couldn't wait to talk to her, and I'm so very glad I did. Kitty lives in Mississippi with her two children and her husband, and they serve full-time with crew which used to be Campus Crusade for Christ, and they're in Oxford, Mississippi at Ole Miss. And I I just know that you're going to love this conversation with Kitty. She's charming. Her accent is wooing. She's confident and yet exudes the joy and hope that we have in Christ. And so in this episode, Kitty shares all about her struggle with being a workaholic and the anxiety that she experienced that came from finding her identity in what she does instead of who she is. And I know there's going to be a lot of us who relate to that part of Kitty's story. She then goes on to explain the difficulty that her and her husband have faced in the midst of a diagnosis of unexplained infertility and their struggle to become parents. And she shares all about their journey as a family through adopting a sibling pair a few years ago and all that that entails. And so it's my hope that as you listen to my conversation with Kitty today, that no matter what mud you're facing, you will see how God has met Kitty and how he can meet you too. And so I will talk to you on the other side of this interview. Enjoy. Hi, Kitty. Welcome to the Mud Stories podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Now tell me, where exactly do you live? Okay, so I am in Oxford, Mississippi, the Deep South. The Deep South. I've always wanted to hang out in the Deep South because I'm from California and I know nothing about the Deep South. I think I've been to Atlanta. Okay, well, that (laughs) counts. That's it. Yeah. I spent a summer in Santa Cruz, California, and my boss put me in the front of the store. It was a surf shop because he said my accent would sell more surfwear. So (laughs) that is hilarious. Yeah. It is a warm, it is a warm, welcoming and inviting accent, I think. And I think that's what charms me about the South. And also, to be completely honest, I love food. And I think you guys, or I think y'all, have the best (laughs) food down there. And maybe that's just my, you know, perception of Paula Deen and all of her cooking. I just, okay, let me just say, I want to visit Savannah, Georgia solely so I can go 
eat Paula Deen's food. Absolutely. No, the stereotypes <laughs> are completely true. Really? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Put a little south in your mouth. It is delicious. It's wonderful. Yeah. And don't you all have these trees that like weep or droop and they have beautiful flowers on them and stuff? Yes. Yes. I, yeah. I don't. Yes. Palm trees, maybe more so. Um, magnolia trees. It's beautiful. It is. It really is. But beautiful. as is California, I think every little spot has its beauty. That is true. I mean, I think the thing I love about where I live, which are so many things, but I can get to the mountains and the beach and the desert all within probably an hour and a half. And that is a delightful thing. It it creates variety except for seasons. We don't really have seasons, but in the South, you don't really, it doesn't really get super cold there, right? We had a shocking snow storm about two weeks ago. My kids could not believe it, but today we're in shorts. So Okay. So similar. Yeah. Oh, Kitty, tell us a little bit about your family and what you do. Perfect. I am the wife of Joel. He is probably the wisest, most sweet, fun man I've ever known. That's my daddy. <laughs> um, but he and I, two years ago, in about a month, adopted two children. My son is eight and my daughter is five and they are the joy of our lives and so it's just been a fun journey to move from the two of us loving each other, loving life, to um, walking through hard season, but then inviting these two into our home has been really fun. Our family is in full-time Christian work, and so every day we get to go onto the college campuses, really around America, but specifically for this season, we're at the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, and we get to talk with people about their spiritual journeys. And if they have spiritual interests, begin to study the Bible, talk about how to have a relationship with Christ. And so that's what we do full time. Um, wow. We're considered campus chaplains is, is kind of what the IRS says we do. So I see. So you are around college students a lot. All the time. All the time. Oh. Built in babysitters, built in fashion consultants. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a really fun age to care for because they are the future leaders of the world. Yes. And so we really believe if we can reach them and care for them and help them make healthy choices and all of this, that they can go on to change history. And so we're excited to get to be in full-time campus ministry. Uh, this is my 10th year of being on staff with the ministry called Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ. And so we just love it. Our whole family has kind of felt that call to be in, um, missions work here in America. So it's a really neat, a neat job, kind of different and unique, but we love it. I love that. And you actually did that prior to being married. Is that correct? That's right. So yeah. So tell was... us a little bit about that. Tell, let's start, let's start your journey there. Take us okay, back yeah. to when you started into, you know, doing this kind of work and this kind of calling on your own prior to even meeting Joel, and mm -hmm. then take us in through how your mud began. That's great. What my life was very much changed when I was in college. I grew up in a wonderful Christian home, but when I got to college, everything changed. My faith became my own and I understood grace. I understood the power of God and it was just amazing. And so when, upon graduation, I was thinking if I could offer this hope and joy and peace to one other person, I would do it. I would do it as a job. And so I interned with Campus Crusade, and I thought, well, okay, I'm going to be in full-time ministry. I'm going to be a missionary. This is exciting, and this is wonderful. <laughs> but what I didn't realize I was doing was I had kind of switched my identity from being perfectly accepted in God's eyes because of what Jesus did to striving, performing, almost being addicted to the thrill of ministry and something so wonderful. Seeing someone's life changed became something that I started finding way too much of my identity and satisfaction in. And so I was probably, you know, the ministry equivalent of a workaholic. I worked nonstop. Mm -hmm. I would, um, yeah, it was just a lot of imbalance, not great boundaries and things like that. But it was neat because we took a spring break trip with a bunch of students to the coast when Hurricane Katrina happened. 
And I was thinking I was being the good missionary and I was going to go help all these people. And in the midst of such devastation, I mean, there was no hotel for us to stay out. We're sleeping in circus tents and taking showers in the back of 18 wheel tractor trailers. It was just amazing. It was literally and physically muddy and we're covered in mosquitoes. So there I am thinking I'm doing this great work for God when in fact God was about to humble me and do a great work for me. That great work for me was meeting my husband. I thought that he was a staff person because he led this big team from Mississippi to the coast. And he actually thought I was a student, but I was on staff and he was the student. So it was a little, <laughs> a little creepy, a little funny, but only a two year difference. It was okay. So, so he we, wasn't working as a Campus Crusade staff member at the time, but he was in the Katrina disaster helping exactly. alongside you. Yes. Oh, so he okay. was a student that was leading a team and we were in all these team leader meetings and I just thought, well, this is going to be my crush for the week. I'm just going <laughs> to have a little crush on him and it's going to be fine and we'll go home and it'll be all over. Um, apparently he was thinking about the same, although um, we didn't realize it then. About six weeks later, after all that devastation and we kind of got back to our respective homes, about six weeks later, we started emailing calling. Hmm. He came for a visit and it all escalated into a wonderful, precious marriage. And so we, we got married, we moved to South Carolina and we worked in, um, full-time Christian vocation for six years at the university of South Carolina. And God did miracles there. I'm talking hundreds of people coming to faith in God and having their lives transformed. It was, it really was a time of revival. Again, feeding my workaholism, I just threw myself into it. And because Hmm. it's godly, it's wonderful. Why, what would be wrong with spending your best waking hours working for God? Now, did you both grow up in the South? I grew up in West Virginia, which take it or leave it, it's, kind of straddling the middle of the Mason-Dixon line. You know, it's, it's close enough. <laughs> yeah. And then he, yes, was raised kind of in this area, Memphis, Mississippi area. So. I see. So you've served for those early years and amazing things were happening. And then what was next? So he kind of sat me down and he just shared with me his heart that my love affair with ministry had become a third wheel in our marriage. And he just felt like, at the end of the day, I had nothing left to give. And so we really spent a couple years, these newlywed years, working through workaholism and the anxiety that comes with that. I just mm. struggled so much with being anxious because at the end of the day, I'd get in the bed and I'd be trying to gauge how successful my day was. And I was gauging it on my performance instead of on Christ's performance. And so that left me in a lot of bondage. We went and saw a wonderful marriage counselor who said, Kitty, prayer is the opposite of anxiety. How's your prayer life? And Mm. I realized it pretty much stinks. I'm depending on myself. I have put myself in the place of God. I think I can change people's lives, none of which is true. So we worked through that. I think there's people out there who can relate to this workaholism, Mm -hmm. This, this issue of even though we're doing a good thing by what we're called to. I mean, for you, it was... Christian service, helping transform people's lives by bringing them good news that could set them free. Mm -hmm. But for other people, I mean, whether they're, you know, an engineer at a desk or, you know, a teacher at a school or whatever our life calling is or our occupation or our job or whatever we spend our days doing, it is easy, even though it's a good thing to get caught up in, in figuring out or thinking that our purpose is really only because of what we're doing instead mm-hmm. of who we are when we're there doing it. Because, exactly. Right? So what are some ways other than counseling that you were really able to work through that? Because, mm-hmm. you know, when your identity is built around what you're doing, you know, and don't you think one of the ways to really know if that's happening to you is take away that thing for a day or two or a season and like sit with that. And what's your response to that? Because I'm guessing that if, if our identity is wrapped around in that alone, 
that's mm-hmm. going to feel panicky. And that's where the anxiety that you're talking about was maybe originating from. That's right. That's exactly right. And so I had to set up with the help of Joel, some really healthy boundaries for what my work life would look like. It was so helpful to think through my capacity, not my capacity as a single woman who could go and do, but my capacity as a wife who also had a home and a marriage to care for. It was so helpful to think through boundaries. Read a couple great books on boundaries. Had a wonderful mentor say to me, Kitty, sometimes the godliest thing you can do is take a nap. God loves you just as much when you are doing absolutely nothing for him right. as he does when you're out there winning people for Christ. I mean, calm down. You are not as impressive as you think you are. Get over yourself. Exactly. Get over yourself. It really was a pride issue. And so I thought way too highly of myself and God used kind of the suffering that he would bring next to humble me and to realize I'm not in control and it's good that I'm not God. I don't need to try Mm -hmm. to and try to, you know, make things happen. So do you think dealing with the muddiness of this issue when you and Joel were first married kind of prepared you for the mud that was coming? Yes. I wish I could have said stake in the ground. I got it. Check it off the list. Perfectly understood it because I see it still in my life today. Mm -hmm. Um, I still see some of that striving. I'm an EST, no, ESFJ. Me too. Me too. ESFJ. Yes. Give me a to-do list. High five. Planner. I know. (laughs) Right. Give it to me. And I I really want to make it happen. I want to do it excellently. And so the gifting that God gave me in my personality, my temperament, Mm -hmm. he gave me this story to be about him. And when I take that out of the context that he created me with and try to make it about me, even if it's me for him, it's still me. Right. Um, It's a constant struggle. Out of whack. Yeah. 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 And for those of you who don't know what we're talking about with these crazy letters, ESFJ, I will link to it in the show notes, but it's basically the Meyer Briggs personality test and there's 16 different types and Kitty and I share this type, which we had no idea. So Anyway, on, on another time, you all can look it up and take a little test and figure out who you are and what your natural bent is. But anyway, I just I love that you're embracing the y'all. So <laughs> I know. I'm so excited. I feel like when I talk to people with accents, I start taking on their accent. Like, I don't yeah. even know. Like the other night, I um, I was, what was I doing? I said something to my family. Y'all, you know, that is not what's happening right now. And my <laughs> husband just looked at me. He's like, you are so not Southern. Like you need to, who have you been listening to? Cause I tend to listen to a lot of audio or audiobooks or things yes. like that. And so I don't know. I just picked up y'all, but it felt so fun to say. I'm, so right. I so want to be from the South. I really do. <laughs> I love it. Oh, so take us into the mud that was next kitty, because although this struggle was hard, it was nothing compared to what you're about ready to go through. Sure. Yeah. I thought so. that marital stress was hard, but who doesn't when you're married for five minutes? So it, it was the foundation that then kind of catapulted us into the next season. Um, Joel would have been happy had we walked down the aisle and scooped up a baby at the end pew of the church. Like he would have been good to go. He, he was made to be a dad. He's super responsible, really fun. Great. Me, however, that just blows my control categories out of the water. I did not think that motherhood maybe was something that God wanted for me. I just thought that was not extremely productive. I don't know. <laughs> I had all these terrible thoughts about It wasn't on the checkoff list. No, it wasn't. And yeah. I don't know why it wasn't, but it just wasn't. And so yeah. I kind of stepped out of that fear into faith after a lot of prayer and talking with Joel and seeing that, yes, God uses mothers in amazing ways, the same way he can minister to a college student to become a world leader, same way he does a child to change the world. So, okay. We um, began trying to start a family, and after a year, it just wasn't happening. And so we went through the typical steps to figure out if there was a fertility issue. Lots of embarrassing tests, lots of agonizing, Mm. miserable medical experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just. It It becomes very robotic and very technical, doesn't it? Absolutely. And though I had wonderful nurses who were so compassionate and kind, it still was just 
Yeah, exactly. You know how it is. Yeah, you nurse yeah. and try to care for people. Because we care. Hearts. We do. Yeah. But it's you so do. hard. Even though you're sticking me with needles and telling <laughs> me to, you know, run around I the know. Hospital. I know. I often, you know, I'll walk into a room and I'll say, hi, my name is Jackie. I'm going to be your nurse today. And I have to do this, 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 and this. And I'm like, well, <laughs> nice to meet you. We're going to get real personal here. And I'm so sorry I'm causing pain. But it's all for your good. You know, <laughs> it's just. That's right. Yeah, we, we get um to know one another really fast so that's right they yeah. just kind of become a little part of our family so yeah. anyway we um went through all the traditional testings that was just awful but um nothing ever came of it we were in the 15 percent of couples in america that struggle with unexplained infertility and so i almost wanted there to be something wrong so that i could fix mm-hmm. it you know mm-hmm. and so you could put um, your finger on it exactly but God saw fit to make it unexplained. There was no way to fix. So it all just was out of my control. About the time that we had done our third fertility treatment, I was going to the doctor for a rotator cuff injury and he did an x-ray that went all the way down to my elbow. I was just thinking this was normal. He thought this was normal as well until he came back with the film and he was white. His nurse was crying he said, you don't have a torn rotator cuff. You have a tumor in your humerus bone. I'm mm. shipping you off right now. We're going to get this all worked out. Thankfully, my husband had come with me that day, and he's green. I'm in, like, fight or flight fight mode. I'm ready to go. Right. And right. they give us all these details. And I end up having a um, bone biopsy, which they missed the tumor by two inches, which was extremely frustrating because when they put the pain reliever into my bloodstream, I went into anaphylactic shock and we were on a recovery unit, which had no doctors near. And so my husband runs out screaming that we need a doctor. We need a doctor. Nurses come flurrying in and um, do all that they can do to try to get me back. But I'm having this strange out of body experience where Mm. I can see it all happening and all, I, I mean, I couldn't communicate. All I could see was Joel on his knees praying, these nurses doing their best to try to get me stable. Heart rate plummeted. And um, it was just a really awful, epic moment where saw my life flash in front of me. And eventually they were able to stabilize me and um, get me under control, only to give us the news that they had missed the bone tumor and they weren't able to read the biopsy. So I would need to go in two weeks later, have an open bone biopsy where they would then figure out, okay, it was actually a blood tumor. And had they hit it for a biopsy, it would have spread all over my body. And in in the doctor's words, he said it would have been lights out. And so it was a huge gift that they missed that, which was awesome. But it was a really scary moment um, in that instance. So we, they they put cadaver bone in um, my body and it healed and it was great. And so, of course, in our minds, we're thinking, well, that was why God didn't allow us to have children. Because he knew we would have to do PET scans and all these things. So he wanted to protect some little life. So we thought, okay, we're going to do this again. We're going to try this again. Had our hopes up as high as they could be. And still, God said no. And that no, I think, was the hardest part for Mm. me. It was less about the baby, and it was more about the no. I just, I wanted the charmed life more than I wanted God to change my life. I wanted Mm. what I wanted, and I wanted it now. And so about two years later, our reproductive endocrinologist just patted me on the knee, and he looked over top of his little wire-rimmed glasses, and he said that, humanly speaking, there was no reason we shouldn't be able to conceive, and that if there was such a thing as a higher power, that higher power had a better plan. And so Mm -hmm. this was kind of the confirmation that we needed to end the fertility treatments and pursue adoption. Our gut reaction was to begin an international adoption process, because that's what everyone was doing. Mm -hmm. So we looked at our options, and given our age, and kind of our situation, there weren't that many countries that seemed to fit. And if they did fit, it, the country was unstable. So it was just, it looked like it was going to be many more years. Mm-hmm. That was just exhausting to us to think about. And so we thought, well, we'll pursue domestic infant adoption the way many of our friends have done. And mm-hmm. that'll be great. So we went to all those workshops 
still lacking peace that this was it. And the one thing we said we would never do was foster to adopt through the state because we thought we've only been married five years. This is crazy. We don't know that we could raise an older child who has more issues. We had all these doubts. But we went to the meeting that the Department of Social Services conducted. We sat there, and it was if God's calling fell on us. And so we walked away with tear-stained faces, and we forged a plan to fight for this child. We were ready to go. So tell me more about that meeting. You, you were pursuing private domestic adoption, correct? So did you go to an agency? Or? We, went, we did all kinds of little workshops and um, interviews with different agencies, just trying to figure out, is this going to be a good fit? We did the international stuff and do, uh, private domestic. We had some students that would find out they were having a baby, and we tried to do the private lawyer thing. I mean, nothing seemed to fit. Well, you had to do a home study also, right? Was there other prerequisites you had to get all together? Because I know I've had some friends who have pursued adoption, and it's mm-hmm. a lot of um, technicalities you have to complete to, yeah. you know, home study and visits, and they come and inspect your house and all of that. Did you have to do mm-hmm. all of that? At this point, we hadn't done any of that until we decided, okay, we're going to go with the Department of Social Services, and we're going to this is going to be the avenue of adoption that we pursue. Then all the paperwork started. They need to inspect your house for lead. They need to make sure you have a fire escape plan and you've got a ladder out your window, all kinds of different things that we had to do. Um, We had to take classes on parenting just to make sure that they felt we were trustworthy parents. Um, We had to do all kinds of homework, home studies, homework, home visits. But after about nine months, of all the process, we were ready to be waiting. And so I thought we'd been waiting for all these years, but it was time to officially <laughs> wait. Um, I think some people call it being paper pregnant. Like you have all the papers <laughs> submitted. You are love just that. waiting for this child. Right. And so this was God's plan. Like he was going to build our family through adoption. We didn't know what that was going to look like. We preferenced one child, baby. We were like two years and younger. Let's go young. Make mm-hmm. it so that... Mm-hmm. You know, we can sort of pretend that we know what we're doing here. Well, (laughs) ease into it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. On a Thursday night, we were in our lowest of lows. It had been nine months um, and some change of waiting. I just, there were some circumstances surrounding it that we were just heartbroken. We were just soul wrenched. We were like, God, where are you? And why is this taking so long? And we were just in the middle of a pity party. And so I decided, okay, tomorrow morning, I am calling that agency and I'm going to figure out what is going on. Why is this taking so long? And so the social worker on the other end of the phone said, did you not get a phone call last night? I said, no, I was having a pity party last night. Why? <laughs> I know there was no call. <laughs> there was no phone call. Um, so she says to me, well, I think you got matched with one child. Maybe it was two. Here's a phone number. Call this social worker and she'll let you know. And of course, my eyes stuck out of my head and I'm thinking, what on earth? We got matched. This is like what I had always envisioned, but I'm freaking out. So we hang up. I hang up. the phone. My husband's at work. I pace around my house and clean my (laughs) stove as clean as you've ever seen. I mean, I just scrubbed all my nerves out of my house. Joel gets home. I'm bursting into tears saying they called, they called, or I called them actually, but they called. And um, so we wait four hours to get a phone call back from the social worker. And she says, we've got a beautiful two-year-old little girl. We thought, okay, two years old, little girl. Perfect. Done. She's like, and she has a five-year-old little bro- or older brother who also would be yours. And so then we're like, what? There's two <laughs> of them. But our hearts are overjoyed, of course. Of course. And so we're and terrified at the same time. I'm overjoyed, sure. completely terrified. Yes. Um, so we're freaking out and we end up being able to sit on it for the night. The next day they present us with a bunch of paperwork. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen your life on paper, but the life of two children who have mm. been horribly abused and neglected and malnourished and just they've seen the worst of the worst. They look really scary on paper mm-hmm. and their needs and their dysfunctions and their 
development, it all just looks terrifying. And so all of our excitement and our hopes and our dreams, again, felt like they just were falling flat and that those balloons were being bursted mm-hmm. um, deflating by the reality and the weight. So deflating, yeah. Just that the wounds and the, the weight of these children's stories, we felt just burdened and broken by. And so again, we're like, is this your plan we don't know we kind of got all freaked out and I knew that um, my mentor's best friend worked for the State Department she said I could call her the minute we got a referral and so I pick up the phone and I call her and I give the names and I ask can you pull their files and figure out if this would be a good match I just can't imagine us parenting these children Mm -hmm. she gets real quiet and she's like Kitty, I don't know if you've ever seen yourself on paper, just like I said, but you would be scared of you too. You would be scared of yourself and the way that your story has been written. Even if you have the best story, it's still Mm -hmm. scary. This is still a soul with hands, with eyes, with a heart. You cannot judge somebody by paper. I said, okay, well, look up the file and you just need to tell me, do you think this is a good option for us? And she gets really quiet. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to make you break confidentiality. Don't do not do it if you don't feel comfortable with this. You had just mentioned you wanted me to call you. Right. She said, no, it's not that. It's that this boy, at that point, I didn't know he was my son, but my son was sitting on her lap because his foster care family had gone on a cruise. She was his respite care worker, keeping him for just a week in her home. And she was 10 minutes down the road. She said, come meet this child and see for yourself what a precious child he is. Now, you have to decide. You've got 18 years to raise him and his sister. But you come and you see the hands. You see the mouth. You see the eyes. You see the heart. And then you make a decision. And so I could not believe there were 10 families on the table for these children. And there are countless children in the system. But to know that God had specifically said, y'all and this, these children... And not only this, but I'm going to let you have a friend who's a child psychiatrist to have observed him and know the situation for weeks. Because that's not typical, right? You don't typically get to meet them. Yeah. No, no. And so we went and met him and fell in love with him. The next day, I get a direct message on Twitter from a foster mom who I did not know was their foster mom. And she said, I've been reading your blog and following you on social media. I have been praying that these children would get placed with you and your husband. No oh. one has pulled, no one has pulled strings, but God, Oh and my she goodness. Said, I have just been asking God to give them a safe family who loves him and that they would be able to be raised to know God. And so Anyway, she says, get to my parents' house. Let's go to the lake. You can meet your daughter. She's obviously using all these, like, your son, your daughter. And I'm still like, oh, I just don't know. I'm still freaking out. But she was very much, this is God's story. He's Mm -hmm. writing it. These are your children. Come and meet them. And so we got to meet. And how sweet for you to have the privilege to see God's hand on it. I mean, so many times I think God is working in our lives, but we're just not able to see it. And yet you know, point after point you're describing, God is being so gracious to say, Kitty, it's me. I love you. And this is what I have for you. This is the gift. And for you to be able to recognize it and be aware of it. Oh, it's giving me goosebumps oh, right even now. Crazy. It's oh. really crazy to see his love kind of just woven through the whole thing and to know that that's his character. That's who he is. Right. He does things that are loving. He does good things, even when they don't feel good. He does good. And so to see that through meeting Joel, through walking through fertility, to mm-hmm. meeting these children, even to the fact that this foster family are now some of our best friends, they are so about us. And to think of a mom and a dad who've raised these foster children Beautiful. only to the point just to get them to be adoptable so that we could have our greatest gift. It's just so sacrificial of them and yeah. So anyway, we met them, fell in love with both children. Um, so you saw your daughter for the first time when you oh, drove there. Yes. Crazy. I mean, the foster mom walks up the driveway and the little girl's given the pageant wave with this little tiara on top. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, well, how did you not just fall in love with the princess here? Oh. So 
it was a glorious day. I mean, the whole thing is documented in photos and all kinds of stuff. And we just fell in love and we knew these are our kids. But Mm -hmm. the legal system was such that these children were not officially legally free. And so Mm -hmm. the Department of Social Services said they'll be your foster children. You can either take them now or you can wait until they're legally free, which could be six to nine months. What do you want to do? So again, we're faced with, do we fall in love with these children and then potentially have to give them back? Mm -hmm. And we said, yes, better to have loved and invested and cared for these children for whatever amount of time God gives us. And so they came to live with us in um, August, two years ago, and then about nine months later, so two full nine months, which to me is God saying, I gave you nine months of paperwork. Mm. I gave you nine months of the legal process. You carried these children. You did. Yeah. So not in your womb, totally in your heart, you carried these children both nine months. Um, and in April of 2013, they became our you know, legal children. Yeah. So we stood before a judge and he declared what we already knew, that they would be ours forever. And so it was beautiful and it was wonderful. And yet so broken and so sad and so hard to see precious, innocent, fragile children who are traumatized and who not only have had to say goodbye to their biological family, but then have to grieve the loss of a loving foster family, Mm -hmm. transitioning into a new adopted family. I mean, my son will still ask questions like, are you going to keep me forever? I never had to ask that of my parents, but Mm -hmm. these children have to wonder. My daughter would ask, who's my next new mommy going to be? Mm-hmm. And I would just have to say to her, baby, God has said forever, forever we will be a family. You know, when you're 15 and you get to practice driving a car, I'm going to be your mommy. And when you're 18 and you graduate from high school, I'm going to be your mommy. And, you know, so we just have to paint pictures for mm-hmm. them of what it'll look like because they have no foundation of what family looks like, what discipline looks like, just what love looks like. Yeah. And so that is the part of the story that we're in right now broken people learning to love broken people and we're just trying to figure that out how we can communicate safety to children whose adrenal glands are shot whose Mm. brains look different I mean I looking at a study yesterday of a three-year-old's brain who's been malnourished abused neglected compared to a normal three-year-old developed brain and the injured broken child it looks like a stroke patient I mean, their brain is the same as stroke patient. And so just seeing that, okay, these children aren't missing a limb. They're not that different looking than we are, but they, there is a difference and there is a special need here that we have to attend to. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of developmental delays, lots of just emotional delays that we're still kind of wading through. And so that's, that's been heavy and that's been amazing and there's lots of laughter and there's lots of tears and it's just all kind of God making these unimaginable things unbelievable. And so we, we're kind of are standing in the midst of that right now. Now, as you navigated those transition months when they were your foster children and not your forever children, I know that is such a hard thing for people who are adopting. Can you speak a little bit to that? And I know there's sometimes mandated visitation, you know, whether it's supervised or not. And maneuvering that and coordinating that can be not only hard schedule-wise, but hard on your heart. Yes. Every two weeks, we would take them to visit with their family. And it was very hard to explain to them who we were in the context of all that was going on around them. But we said that we were praying that God would make us their forever family and that it would be safe and a loving place. But every two weeks we would go, we would visit. Sometimes my little girl would walk out with earrings having been shoved through her closed earring holes. And my Mm. son would have a huge Mountain Dew in his hand and his pockets full of candy. And they would just be treated the way that their parents thought was best. And yet we knew there was just a better way to love these kids. And so we pray often for their biological family. We call them their natural family. And mm. we know that God can redeem all. And so we do yeah. hope a great story one day for all of it. But right now we are 
hopeful that God will use all of it in their stories in the future. But when those visitations were done, I was not sad. It yeah. was really hard to so watch. So hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a very, very close friend who's adopted several children, and she's been through that many times. And, you know, several of her children that she, you know, went through that with were returned to their families. Mm-hmm. And um, just so hard. I know if there's anybody out there who really is facing the grief of that. I think Kitty and I both want you to know today, God sees you and he loves you and he has an ultimate plan for good, even though it feels so, so hard right now. And I know, I'm sure, Katie, you imagined that being a possibility, and I'm sure it would have been heart-wrenching had that happened. So, Yes, yeah. definitely. And even now, as we think, how will we, will we grow our family? How will we do that if we do? Mm-hmm. It's still, we still stare down the hall of, okay, do we want to do this again? It's such a risk, but it's such a reward, too, the way that God works it out. So, yeah. Well, as you reflect back on your story, what would you offer as advice or recommendations for anyone today who maybe is facing workaholism or finding their identity in what they do instead of who they are? Um, Maybe they have, you know, month after month been hopeful that that pregnancy test was going to be positive. Or maybe they even today faced going to the doctor, doing these terrible tests and met that nurse that draws blood each and every time, whatever it is that they're facing that they see in your story, can you offer some practical advice of what helped you not only get through, but be able to look back and give thanks for those muddy places that you've walked? I had no idea that I could know God in a more profound way through suffering and sorrow. But the more I looked at who he was on the pages of scripture, the more my heart was consoled and the more peace I felt. I didn't even, it didn't even enter my mind that even though God is not a woman, he totally understands what it's like to have children who are not yet his, that he desires to have be his own. Mm -hmm. And I just couldn't believe that God could understand and sympathize with this weakness and he could understand this grief and my tenderness. To me, that is an amazing God that he can understand all of what we're going through. And so I think whatever situation people find themselves in, as they look to the character of who God is, their needs are so met in him. Hmm. Their needs are met. And also he can sympathize no matter where they are. That's amazing to me. Um, To see that none of those times, days, tears, minutes were wasted to know that God was working out his perfect plan all along the way and I could just fall in step with him. That was incredible to be able to look back, obviously hindsight's 2020, but to look back knowing God took a girl from small town, West Virginia to Podunk, Mississippi, and he made it happen. (laughs) And God began a family with children who are older than what we've even been married. He, he was birthing them 20 minutes from our house. And he knew that five years later, they would be ours. And he knew that he would give them a special story that can maybe even show them God's love more because they've experienced the depth and the sadness of earth. Right. So he knows and he sees and he works it all together for good. And that's so cliche, but it's so powerful. But it's so powerful and it's really important for us to... And this is part of the reason why I love sharing people's stories. And I'm so thankful that there are people like you who will come on this podcast and share what you've been through, because I think it's in seeing what God has done Mm -hmm. in the past that gives us that hope and that confidence and and hope not as like wishful thinking, but a hope that's confident and trusting in knowing with certainty that He is going to meet us where we are and that he is working in our lives no matter what we're facing. And I think being reminded of how he has worked really allows us to embrace that place of trust to know that he will do that for us too. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm so thankful for you today for coming to share with us. What other advice would you give in practical ways? Like if people are doing these court dates or fertility treatments or Mm -hmm. whatever it is, is there some advice as you're going through stuff that you can 
suggest to others maybe something they can do or say, something they could read, um, mm-hmm. anything at all? So I think number one, sharing our sadness with safe people is so huge. Mm-hmm. I I could have kept a lot of it in isolation, but and I did for a while. But when I finally stepped out and shared it with people who were safe, it brought so much freedom and comfort. Yeah. And then not only that, when I wasn't feeling like I wanted to go talk to people about it, I sat in my little house and I read fantastic books on infertility, suffering, pain. There are a few key ones that really ministered to me. In fact, I started a couple online um, virtual book clubs out of them and have connected with infertile women all across America. And we've studied these books together and they all agree that these are the best books. So let me tell you this. Yes, tell us. The first one is called Infertility, Finding God's Peace on the Journey. And that's by Lois Flowers. It's literally a penny on Amazon. And so if you or someone you know is going through it, that's a fantastic resource. All the girls in my book club groups, they freak out about that book because it's so good. <laughs> I love it. That's an, that's an oldie but a goodie. But a new one that just came out recently is called Every Bitter Thing is Sweet by Sarah Hagerty. She is a fantastic author. And her book just really has a – it's got a great storyline, but it also teaches you how to be grateful for who God is no matter what he gives. So that one's fantastic and really used by God in my life. And the third one is called Holding On to Hope by Nancy Guthrie. She lost several children and walks through the pain of that beautifully, um, realistically, but beautifully. So those three books helped me so much. They just gave voice to my pain and they helped me feel like I wasn't alone. I think sharing with people a lot of times whoever you're telling will be like, Oh, I knew this one person that had this and then they got pregnant or then they adopted, then they got pregnant. I'm like, okay, that's just really not that helpful because you make a baby sound like a consolation prize to, you know? So anyway, I think that sometimes reading those books was really safe for me and Mm -hmm. it it was huge. Helped you know you're not crazy to validated your feelings. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, so I think sharing with safe people, reading some of those books, and really letting your mess be your message. I mean, God has connected me with more amazing quality women and really families, actually, recently here in town who are walking through infertility or are seeking out adoptive plans. He has given us a new facet to connect people with. And so letting that kind of mess and the mud be a message that you can offer the world it makes it all feel worth it when you can offer hope to somebody else because you've walked through the mud and you can say, there's hope, there is joy to be found even in the midst of this hard thing. It really does make it all kind of worth it in the end. Yeah. What are some things that you found helpful that others said to you or not so helpful (laughs) as you were going through these things? Oh, mercy. I know. Only because I think some of us, we want to say something nice. We want to be there for someone, but we don't mm-hmm. know what to say. And, you know, I know that with Facebook and social media, you know, there are levels of relationship we have with people. There are people who are really close to us and there are people who are just, you know, casual friends, people who are friends of friends or acquaintances. And so they may hear of our stories and desire to reach out, but they don't really know how to or if they should. And then sometimes it ends up that no one reaches out and then we're in our mud all alone thinking nobody cares when really so many people do care, but nobody's doing anything. So true. You know? Absolutely. And so I think just offering to people the gift of being seen. I mean, for someone happened this week to just send a message and say, I'm thinking about you. I care about you. I know that what you're walking through right now is challenging. I don't understand it, but I see it and I'm here. Mm-hmm. That's powerful and that's huge. Yeah. I think what's not helpful is when people say, well, you should be glad you never dot, dot, dot. Right. You should be glad you never had to do the bottle thing or the potty training thing. No, I would give up anything to have had those years with right. my kids. So anytime someone's telling you how you should feel, probably not a healthy emotional boundary. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one. Um, I've had sweet friends navigate their own pregnancies around me and they've done it beautifully. And, you know, 
think infertile women can sometimes, I know that I was in a very selfish place where I didn't think anybody else should be happy or receiving what I wanted. And so mm-hmm. God used that, even my own sin, to show me that, okay, this is not their story. This is my story. And this is a special place between me and him. And he's going to use this. And so I didn't need to be completely selfish either. So some of it is I have to not be sensitive and holding on to this relished issue and that other people do have to learn how to be gracious, not tell you how you should feel, not offer their own sob stories to make you feel better because it just doesn't always feel better. So when people say, I see you, I care about you, what do you need right now? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's huge because sometimes all you need is just a hug. Sometimes all you need is coffee, whatever. But And it's okay to say, you know, I see you and I care and I really don't know what to say, but I'm here. Absolutely. You know, I think I'd take that all day long. Yeah. You know, Especially now as adoptive parents, when typical traditional parents haven't felt like they understand what we're going through with some of mm-hmm. the hard things. It's been really helpful to have friends who offer grace and just a flat offer of, I'm here. What do you need? Right. And to know who your people are, who those people who will faithfully pray for you. Mm-hmm. you know, and be with you, your ones that you know you can count on to contact and go to. And if you don't have those, there are ways to find those. I mean, hopefully a great church in the area can offer some of those support relationships. We've found great connections online in our new, we just moved here two years ago in our town. It's you, there are the relationships out there. It does sometimes take stepping out to try to find them. Right. It's totally worth finding them. Well, Kitty, it has been so awesome for you to be here with me today. I know I've personally been encouraged by your story and your faith and how you've just championed walking through mud with dignity and faithfulness, really. As we close today, I would love for people to be able to find you, but I know that you really are an advocate of practicing self-care and nourishment and creativity in the midst of crisis. And I know you have a place online that you call home that you've really poured into in that respect. Can you tell us a little bit about how you began creating in the midst of crisis, how that was self-care and nourishment for you, and then where we can find you online? Absolutely. When I could not create this child that I so wanted to create, um, God gave me the gift of just using words and writing. There were a few crafty things on the side, but I'm not really crafty. But anything I could do to create (laughs) and, you know, just be creative and reflect God's character in that, even though I could not procreate, um, that was just really helpful. And that nourished my own soul. And so I love blogging. Some people, it's so ridiculous. But to me, it's worship. I love it. It's so fun. It's cheaper than therapy. Like, I just love to write. And so we have a website that is for the people who support our ministry, but also just a great place to share about life, family, faith, um, food in the South, all kinds of things. And that's um, joelandkitty.com. I love blogging there several times a week. And um, that's just been a fun space to be creative and find just kind of some soul refreshment there. So, And is your book club or the community that you started, is that connected through your blog? Can they find all of that? So if they get on my blog and just hit the contact button, share with me that they'd be interested in joining our community. We have a Facebook group that's a closed secret Facebook group, very private. Um, But we will often, we meet about once a month. We do Google chats and Google hangouts. And so we talk about comparison. We talk about the journey that people are going through with infertility, yeah. several adoptive families. Um, so, yeah, I can. I would love to add anyone who's walking through that to our Facebook community. And okay. it's a very gentle place. It's, it's a very gentle, private, comforting, kind mm-hmm. space. And so yeah. I'd be glad to. I would love to include anybody who's walking through that. Awesome. Because you still are on that journey. I mean, yes, you're the mother of two beautiful children now, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that struggle of infertility or that pain is gone, right? That's right. Yeah. It's it's a muted pain, almost like if you're playing the trumpet and you put mm-hmm. the mute in. It's 
still there. It's definitely muted and it feels different. And sometimes it can even feel guilty because I have these wonderful children filling my arms and filling my lap and filling my heart. But there is still that residual, why not? Yeah, why is it no? Mm-hmm. The ache, ache is yeah. definitely still there, though it feels um, a lot different now because there's a great amount of distraction in my life. But it uh, it is still there for yeah. sure. So I love talking with people about that. And I think it's important to realize that not all mud stories are concluded. You know, I would say all of us are currently in mud at one point or another. And what I love about what God's done in your life is there have been certain places that you've been deep in pain and that God has redeemed and he showed you how he did that and how he worked it out. And yet there's still mud left to walk through in different areas Mm -hmm. in different ways and he's proving himself faithful even now and i i i want everyone to be encouraged that no matter no matter what god's with you today i think both you and i would champion that until the day we die (laughs) Mm -hmm. right for sure absolutely thank you so much for joining me today it's been an absolute honor to talk to you I've loved it. This was really good for me to even think through my own story. And I love the Dan Allender quote. I don't know if you've heard it. it No, tell us. So take seriously the story God has given you to live. It's time to read your own life because your story is the one that could set us all ablaze. And I'm like, you need to Uh, hear yourself tell your own story sometimes because it can change someone's life. It can change someone's day and it can change your own heart and your perspective on it all. Yeah. Our own hearts. Absolutely. I know it did that. My story did that for me. And I love that yours did that for you. So, hey, y'all, if you have a story and you choose to write it out or you choose to share it with even just one person, meet Kitty and I in the comments and let us know about it. Send us a message. We would love to rejoice with you and be excited with you as you process your story, too. So I love talking with you, Kitty. I hope you have an amazing day. Absolutely. You, too. All right. Bye bye. Thanks. Well, so much thanks to Kitty for joining us on this episode. And I wanted to quickly share before we go something exciting that Kitty and her husband, Joel, and their two children will be embarking on tomorrow. They are leaving for a five-week trip to Rome, Italy, and they are taking some Ole Miss students with them, and they will be mainly uh, doing some evangelism outreach and relationship building with Italians on campus there. And there are several prestigious professors that'll be doing some presentations about faith and field work. And so if you think of it in the next few weeks, if you would pray for Kitty and Joel and their two children as they are overseas sharing the love of Christ with Italian students there. And so if you want to learn more about what Joel and Kitty are doing on this particular trip or just in their missions with students in general, Or if you want to donate to Joel and Kitty, they are a ministry and they do raise their own funds. And so there's a link in the show notes that you can go to if you are able or desire to donate to Joel and Kitty's efforts with students. Also, you can go to Joel and Kitty's website, joelandkitty.com. I have links to that in the show notes for this episode. You can get there by going to jackiewatkins.com forward slash episode 43. And all the links that Kitty mentioned, including the books that she recommended and a link to take the Meyer Briggs personality test, just all of it is in there for you. And so you can get there and check that out. Also, if you want a free audiobook today, all you have to do is go to mudstoriesbook.com and sign up for a free 30-day trial, which you can cancel at any time. I don't know about you, but I have been loving audiobooks. I have listened to two in the past week, and I have thoroughly enjoyed them. And it seems like I can get through books much quicker and actually finish them when I listen to them instead of read them. And so if you want to check that out, it's mudstoriesbook.com. And then also don't forget, you can get a free app to this podcast. And all you have to do is go to your Play Store or wherever you find your apps and you can search Mud Stories and you'll see it there. It's absolutely free. And it's my hope that it makes listening to this podcast easy for you. And so today, no matter what you're facing, no matter where you've been or what lies ahead, may you find a grateful song to sing. Have a beautiful day.
never in you mama feels a press upon my mind I pull the shame that leaves me a little bit blind I cannot see beyond the blame and I never will find a way out and then I feel you next to me you lift my head to see your strong arm reaches to me Your mercy floods my tired soul As you lift me out of my muddy hole You wash me up with your sweet grace And you lead me to a safer place again I never any mother feels a press upon my That leaves me a little bit blind I cannot see beyond the blame And I never will find a way out And then I feel you next to me You lift my head to see Your strong arm reaches to me Your mercy floods my tired soul As you lift me out song